Hello and welcome to COS Live. You can watch the original video broadcast live on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Visit conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. And now, here's COS Live. Well, hello, COS supporters, and welcome back to another episode of COS Live. My name is Andrew Woodruff, and I have the marvelous Rita Peters next to me, my co-host. Rita, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay, Andrew, although I have to say I'm really troubled by what's happening in Afghanistan. It's just terrible. I'm really troubled by it too. I mean, we, uh, the images uh, that we saw of the Taliban taking over Afghanistan was really heartbreaking. And uh, today we have the pleasure of interviewing a person who has some firsthand experience um, uh, being deployed to Afghanistan. Uh, he had some, uh, he did some work with the CIA as well. So we'll be able to pick his brain and get his perspective on what's going on right now and how the current administration is really failing our uh, armed services. Uh, men and women. So we'll get to that in just a few moments. We have, of course, an on-the-ground report from Idaho. And then we also have, as usual, our Article 5 trivia giveaway question with COS Vice President Mike Ruthenberg. Mike, over to you. Hello, Andrew and Rita. I am so glad to be here. Another great week of Facebook Live with our amazing Convention of States grassroots and the audience of people that are coming to check us out to see if maybe there is a solution better than throwing your shoe at the television. I, I'm sure hoping so. And today I want to tell you a little bit about just how big Convention of States has gotten. And there's some crazy things going on in the world right now. Some things that, boy, it's, it's a shame, especially some of our vets. My heart goes out to all of our vets that have fought to keep the peace around the world and to see some of it coming unfolded in Afghanistan is, is truly heartbreaking. But that's not really the topic of today, although I'm sure it's on everybody's hearts and hopefully your thoughts and prayers are going out to the poor folks over in that section of the world and our veterans that have been fighting so hard to keep the peace and to keep America free. Anyway, for today, we're gonna talk a little bit about our trivia question. I'm gonna pull out of my pocket here the item that I'm going to give away as our prize today, and this is our Convention of States pocket knife. It just went on sale yesterday. We call it the Medic, and it's the it's that way because you can not only cut seat belts with the little strap cutter there or twine or string. You can break glass with the little point there, and it is a very quick assisted open blade. It is for sale in the store for under $20. It's a killer deal. Love carrying it with me. Go to shopconventionstates.com. If you can't wait, you need to have one right now. Go ahead and be first one, one of the first ones to get this knife since we've put it back in the store. It is a very popular knife. And if you are lucky enough and fast enough to get the answer to our trivia question and to win, we're going to send you one of those things. Not the one that's in my pocket, of course, but we'll send you one right from the COS store. So again, you can go to shopconventionstates.com excuse me, shopconventionofstates.com and check it out in the store right now if you want to know more details about that knife. Now let's move on to our trivia question today. And many of you know that over 2 million of you and of our amazing American compatriots have signed the petition in support of Article 5 in a Convention of States to propose term limits, fiscal restraints, and to contain federal overreach. But a petition is more than a list of names, of course, because each time someone signs the petition, 
it allows us to be able to send it out and to keep track of you should you decide to be maybe a supporter or volunteer in convention estates. Probably the coolest thing and one of our aspirations when we started this petition program, so we've got over 2 million, but of course we had to start with the very first one. There's about 5,373 legislative districts throughout the nation, through all 50 states. And we now have petitions in all 50 states in every single district throughout America. That gives you an idea of just how popular and how big Convention of States is going. And I already gave the answer away to our trivia question. So you're gonna have to be really quick in order to win this pocket knife. And the question is, who do we send your Convention of States petition to? And you have to be pretty darn specific to win this time because there is more than just one. And so you have to hit it. Unless, of course, you're in that state. And if you're the one who wins, you will also identify the state you're in and we'll come back a little bit later and untangle this a little bit so you have a better idea of just how the Convention of States petition works and why it's so important. Now, back to you, Andrew and Rita. Before we get to our interview with uh, COS State Director Al Torres, uh, we are going to give you an on-the-ground report from one of our field reporters in Idaho. Um, we're going to be talking to Marty, and he's going to give you, he's going to put you in the know on what's going on in Idaho right now. So Marty, over to you. All right, we're at the uh, morning shift at the Post Falls Gun Show, and uh, this is our booth here. Uh, we have, uh, first we'd like to just talk to Paul West. Uh, Paul, can you tell us why you are here today when you could be out on the lake? <laughs> well, I think this is more important than being out on the lake, although I'm not against that. I just love supporting our country. Most people think that there's nothing we can do, but there is lots we can do right here. And over here we have Joanna Crabtree and Eric Redman. And uh, Eric, what? Uh, how did you get involved with this program and, and uh, what's your story? Well, to be precise, I guess I was a legislator in the state of Idaho and I first heard about it in, in ALEC, you know, American Legislative Exchange Council. And I was on the simulated convention of states and that was a wonderful experience because I felt that was the Idaho needs along with the other 15 states at this time. And so this is why we're here, to get our state legislators on board. How's it going today? Well, I think we're doing pretty good. Yes, yeah. We've got 40 plus, and that just didn't what in our time, I guess. Yeah, all right. Well, great. Well, we sure appreciate you guys uh, volunteering your precious time on a beautiful Saturday in North Idaho. And over here, uh, we uh, have Jason Eubanks, or JD. and. Uh, can you tell us how it went today? It went really good. All right. Really good. I think we got a decent little stack here to go off of. More than the last time, anyway. I noticed. It looks like I noticed the parking lot was completely full today. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a good turnout. A lot of people were interested. A lot of people listened to what we had to say, and uh, everybody's looking for a solution. Everybody's scared. They don't want, you know, they don't want to see the country fall and become communists. And I think that this is a a realistic solution. All right. Well, I like your shirt there, Jason. That looks uh, pretty cool. This is one of our volunteers over here, Lauren Watson. Lauren. Sir. How long have you been here today? I've been here since 9 o'clock this morning. All right, how's it going? How's the traffic doing? The traffic is pretty heavy. Everything's been running smooth. I am seeing more bear spots on the table. We're running out of material, huh? Uh, flyers. Okay, well, we'll get that stock back up. And over here we have Scott Ryder. Uh, Scott, uh, can you uh, real quick to say uh, where you're from and, and what your position is in COS? Well, I'm from Post Falls, Idaho, and uh, I'm uh, a region uh, one. COS member, but I'm also uh, Education Outreach Director for Idaho. Why are you here, uh, Scott, when you could be out fishing today? Well, I like uh, 
most people don't worry about the country. And um, I'm also worried about how many people are um, figuring that there's no choice except the Civil War. But there is an option before the Civil War, and that's uh, Article 5, where the, the founders foresee this problem, foresaw this problem, and uh, gave us this option to pass amendments to legislatures instead of Congress. So we can that strong here. Well, we appreciate you uh, coming today. Thank you guys both. And uh, this is uh, Marty France with COS in Post Falls, Idaho. Watching Afghanistan fall to the Taliban was one of the more difficult things for our veterans recently. Um, thousands of patriots, they signed up for the armed services after the attacks on 9-11. And thousands more served and fought in Afghanistan. One of those patriots is Al Torres. And he, uh, he is a veteran with the U.S. Navy, and he is also a Convention of States co-director in Texas. And his time at the CIA, he uh, participated in operations in Iraq and in Afghanistan from 2002 to 2012. Al, thank you so much for your service, and thank you for joining us on this program today. My first question to you, would you just share with the audience a little bit of your background and maybe share your story? And then would you be able to give us um, an idea of, of your experience in Afghanistan? Sure. Thank, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. My, my journey into uh, service for the United States government started when I left the University of Puerto Rico to join the Navy. Uh, it was at the tail end of the Vietnam War. Uh, never set foot in country or it was deployed like that, but I spent six years in the United States Navy before uh, finally um, getting out and, and because basically I got an offer to, uh, to sign up to work for the CIA. And I thought that would be an interesting uh, life choice. Uh, so I did. And I finally got the call, you know, it takes a while to get processed through there. You really have to do some uh, major uh, hoop jumping in order to, to be uh, accepted into employment with the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. But I did back in uh, late 79 and went through a bunch of training to do that. My specialty was in the communications field, uh, learning everything about from, from uh, Morse code and, and uh, covert uh, communications through satellite communications, you name it, the whole gamut. Um, and typically everything was the normal stuff as far as normal for working for the agency. One, you, you live a life where you can't really tell anybody what you do for a living. Uh, we work in, in a covert world and you have different um, uh, aliases or uh, jobs that you work for that really isn't what you're doing in, in real life. And uh, I started out deployment <clears throat> the first time overseas was actually down to Buenos Aires. I was supposed to go to... Uh, Karachi, Pakistan for my, my first uh, deployment, but uh, that didn't work out when we were setting things up there because it was uh, towards the, re the resolution of the uh, Iran hostage crisis, which was uh, the first big thing that was going on once I uh, joined the agency. In fact, uh, two of my friends were actually hostages there for the whole 444 days. One of them eventually committed suicide. The other one is, is still around. He has his issues and problems, but uh, Thank God he's still with us and, and doing relatively well. Uh, from there, I did deployments around all, all parts of different parts of the world. And what finally got me going into here, where I spent a lot of my time in Afghanistan and Iraq, was in obviously 9-11. I am a native New Yorker, uh, right behind me, actually. Let me get out of the way there. I turn away. But that's a picture of New York City, the, the uh, Brooklyn Bridge and everything right there. And, of course, for lack of a better word, they pissed me off when they did that. I think everybody was in that frame of mind. I was actually working in Colombia 
uh, working on efforts with the uh, Colombian military and, and uh, army and Navy and their police efforts on counter narcotics efforts, the uh, counter narco terrorist type of world when that happened. And it was a struggle to get back to the States, but I did. And for the, uh, for the next uh, several months, I changed gears, uh, stopped what I was doing there. Uh, and I decided I was close towards my, the end of my uh, career with the agency. I was thinking about retiring, but I couldn't go out without putting boots on the ground and getting back to where we started. So um, after getting trained for war, on the, the global war on terrorism and everything like that for, uh, to get out there, I landed in uh, Kandahar, Afghanistan, in uh, I think it was around October of 2002. It's right on the Pakistani border near Spinboldock and everything like that. Uh, once I got there, um, it was on. You know, the first thing I did when I stepped off our uh, C-100, which is the civilian equivalent of a C-130, and the, the tailgate lowered down, and uh, it was our second stop because first we landed in Kabul. Um, opened that door and stepped out, and I looked around, and I actually had to say to myself, the hell was I thinking? You know, I got here, you look around, and now it's real. It, it's real what's going on. It's, it's, uh, it's not what you've seen on the news. It's anything else. You're there. And in my capacity as a uh, CIA officer, um, it's a little different in that you're not wearing a uniform. You definitely don't want to be uh, be outed or caught with anybody like that. But we fought right alongside with our, our military brothers. A lot of people don't know or aren't aware of uh, the role the, the agency played in, in uh, the events that happened after 9-11. But it was twofold. What we found out immediately was that uh, what, what happened in New York really cut down communications and we were blind. Our eyes and our ears were, were gone when that happened there. So we had to uh, figure out real quick how to get those uh, those capabilities back in the best way we could. And that developed over the next couple of years, too, as we got better at it. But when 9-11 hit, um, the, the, the DCI, George Tenet, put everything in motion real quick, obviously, under orders from the White House. And um, the CIA put people together, a team together, and... Uh, from from that immediate moment when the towers were still coming down, they were already getting gear to go back out that way. And the CIA had a team of seven officers on the ground. They were wheels up on September 19th. On September 19th, we had seven people headed out to Afghanistan, and they landed there uh, and figured out what we were doing. The whole idea was there to get obviously get intelligence to work with them. We were working with the uh, Northern Alliance, the people in, in charge at the time, they're trying to figure out who we could trust and not and be able to work with, and then figuring out targeting for the military. So we're the first ones on the ground. The other part of that is for, and looking at it from this way, one of the little known things is that when the CIA goes and do something like that, you can always claim it's an act of espionage and not an act of war. So that's a, a little backed off of some of the reasons they do that. But we're mobilized to get in there quick and be able to do those things, and that's what happened. We put seven guys on the ground with wheels up within uh, uh, nine days. One of the, uh, matter of fact, if you look at that, I've got right here. This book was written by Gary Schroen. He was the, uh, the chief that went in there at the time. It's called First Ed, account of how the CIA spearheaded the war on, on terrorism in Afghanistan. And there's some pictures and stuff in there that shows what's going on. But one of the things they did when they commandeered one of the uh, Soviet helicopters, the ones that get everything over there, they changed the tail number. They painted it and changed the tail number to read 9-11-01. And that's what they first went in and, and did that kind of stuff there. So it's little known what the CIA does in that kind of effort. Um, 
it's also forgotten that the first American that was killed in Afghanistan was a CIA officer, Mike Spann. Uh, he was killed early on in the conflict out there. And his wife, who's also a, a former CIA officer, spoke out of recently because of what uh, she's seeing going on in Afghanistan now, knowing that we're leaving a lot of people behind that worked with us and everything. Um, it, it troubles me when I hear uh, the administration putting blame on some of the people there who fought and worked hard with alongside of us when they were out there. Uh, sure, there's elements there that they don't have the same military bearing necessarily that, that the United States Armed Forces has, but they fight hard for what they believed and they helped us while we were there. So to hear what he was saying and everything is, is, is troubling. To hear and to see what's going on from everything that we did uh, is, is demoralizing. But the one thing, the one thing we do know is that we hold our heads up high because what we did was right. What we did was was appropriate for what we were asked to do, and nobody hangs their head in in, in shame or anything like that. Um, we did not embarrass the United States for what we did out there, and we shouldn't have. We should, probably shouldn't have drawn back all the way here. But everything's about optics, especially now with this group. I mean, the optic of saying that they wanted to make that withdrawal initially by 9/11 was inexcusable. It's all about the optics for them. Yeah, well, Al, thank you so much for giving us that great background. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in Afghanistan currently. The Taliban have already begun executing detainees, taking women, forcing girls as young as 15 to marry terrorists. Heartbreaking video emerged this week of Afghans desperately clinging to the fuselage of an Air Force transport plane, and some held on long enough to fall to their deaths. There have been images of women trying to throw their babies to safety over a razor wire fence. But does the president care? It, he, it doesn't appear that he does. Let's watch a video to see how President Biden responded. When you look at what's happened over the last week, was it a failure of intelligence, planning, execution, or judgment? Look, I don't think it was a failure. Look, it was a simple choice, George. When the, when the Taliban, uh, let me back it, put it another way. When you had the government of Afghanistan, the leader of that government, getting in a plane and taking off and going to another country, when you saw the significant collapse of the, of the uh, Afghan troops we had trained, up to 300,000 of them, just leaving their equipment and, and, and taking off. That was, you know, I'm not, this is, is that, that's what happened. That's simply what happened. But we've all seen the pictures. We've seen those hundreds of people packed into a C-17. We've seen Afghans falling. That was four days ago, five days ago. What did you think when you first saw those pictures? What I thought was we're, we have to gain control of this. We have to move this more quickly. We have to move in a way in which we can take control of that airport. And we did. So you don't think this could have been handled, this actually could have been handled better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look, but the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that happened. So for you, that was always priced into the decision? Yes. 
Wow, Al, it seems like the president thinks it was all just inevitable. He seems to be shrugging coldly at these horrific images and refusing to shoulder any responsibility. Do you think it could have been handled better? Absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, um, I think we've all heard on, on the news recently that um, given his statements and, and how he was, you know, the, the, the buck stops with me while he was pointing fingers at everybody else, um, they have to defend their reputation and, and, and defend what was really brought to the table behind the scenes. Um, let, let's not forget that when it was time to go after uh, Bin Laden himself, this president was the one who objected to making that operation happen. He's the one that held back. Um, I know from experience that the military would have given all kinds of options that give themselves the best opportunity to make for a successful operation. Nobody goes into their planning for failure. Nobody goes into their plans for immediately, let's go to plan B instead of plan A. Nobody does that. I'm sure the intelligence on the ground from the intelligence officers were giving him the information that says, this is the reality. But again, it seems like this administration and everybody behind the president who, who's running things are looking more towards the optics. I mean, the optics originally, like we said, was to pull out by 9-11. For whatever reason, they thought that was going to be a good idea is beyond me. And they look at this saying, okay, let's get out of here now. They boxed themselves in by saying, here's a date. So now the Taliban are in control. They're the ones, we're begging them now to say, let us be here at least to the 31st. And in order to do this, I was telling my wife this the other day, in order to do this, the military has got to get out of there and they have to start drawing down. And that's not going to help with the rest of the evacuation of, of the Americans and the uh, and the Afghan people who are supposed to be coming with us. And in just today in the news, it shows here that the military's got to start drawing down their presence by this Friday in order to do that. And once you start doing that, you don't have the capability then to defend those people on the ground for a safe extraction. Right? They've got to put their vehicles in those planes. They got to get the planes there. And if they wanted to right now, if the Taliban really wanted to do anything they wanted to with ISIS, Al-Qaeda, everybody else is there, a couple of well-placed border into that runway, and they're stuck. They're stuck. They did not give themselves the opportunity to do there. I know that most of the military probably would have said, keep Bagram. Keep that airport open. It's heavily defended. I mean, I traveled there all the time, back and forth, you know, that with the guys back in our day when we went there, we were skin thin. We didn't have armor vehicles. But... That was a safer place to try to execute this from both places actually to get out of there. So right now, what they're left with, um, the where you hear that the embassy withdrew to the airport. Um, I know there's an annex right there. The station annex would be out there, and that's where they're hunkered down. But it's nowhere near as fortified as that embassy building was. So they gave up everything. They're in trouble. Mm -hmm. For the viewers who are just tuning in right now, we are speaking with Al Torres, who is the state director for Convention of States. Texas. Um, Al, um, are there other people that you know, other uh, other veterans who feel the same way that you feel right now? Um, considering, I mean, you're bringing a lot of information, a lot of different perspectives right now about how the Biden administration handled this. Are there others who are um, in lockstep with you and how, how you think it should have been handled differently in Afghanistan? Oh, ab absolutely. In fact, it's kind of funny. I've had uh... I have several of the veterans for the Veterans Association that I uh, established here in my neighborhood. They keep calling me to see how I'm doing, <laughs> you know, and I check on them and everything. Um, they use a lot 
different language than I'm using here right now to express their frustration with what's going on and um, and exactly what they have to say about the key players that are in power right now and what they're doing here. And one of the one of the things that's uh, common throughout the threads of everything we're talking about is that we haven't hit rock bottom yet. With what's going on here is just opened up the opportunities for the terrorists around the world to hunt, gather up in Afghanistan and get ready to launch again. Um, there have been many, many, many attacks on this country and, and other places in the world that have been foiled by the efforts of the military and, and the intelligence services, not only of the, of the United States, but of our, our allies that have been, you know, disquashed. I don't know that we have that now because they've taken away our eyes and our ears. They haven't left anything in place that says you could actually monitor what's going on there. And as much as they say you can do this over the horizon, it's not that easy to do that. So to a, to a person I've spoken with, they say hunker down because it's, it's going to get worse. Um, we, we know that they will now feel emboldened to go ahead and do what they want to do. One, one of the things that it always draws me back to was back when the hostages in Iran first happened. When the planes uh, crashed in the desert, when they first tried to make that, re that, that rescue, one of the first things we heard on the chatter from the, the terrorist organizations in Iran and everything was that the Americans don't like the sight of their own blood. And that emboldened them. And we've seen the rise of terrorism around the world ever since that happened with, with a failure to take action at a time when somebody violated the sovereignty of the United States of those embassies that the rest of the world had always uh, applied to and adhered to. That set the tone that no place was safe anymore. I mean, you've, you've seen after that, all the embassies that were blown up, Beirut, we lost the whole station there, um, and, and incidents like that. They've been emboldened because they know it was said. The Americans don't like the sight of their own blood. They took that message wrong. And actions like what's happening right now just goes back to revalidate that. And, and that's sad because a lot of a lot of men and women have poured their sweat and blood into this country for those kind of things. And they see it torn down simply for optics and for what they think is a right move like this here is is beyond beyond the pale. Nearly 70% of all Americans believe President Biden mishandled the situation in Afghanistan. This includes 89% of Republicans. 75% of independents and a plurality of Democrats at 48%. What do you think of those numbers? I think it's truth. I think the, I, I don't think that it matters what side of the aisle you're on when it comes to defending this nation and what she stands for. I don't think that, that, that has any divide there. And when, people see what's happening to us and to see how we look in the eyes of the world, they don't like it. And they don't like a president. They don't like an administration. Let's just not take it just on him, but they don't like an administration that foolhardily handle this for nothing more than the optics of being able to say, I did it. I got us out of there. I mean, that's one of his agendas. Let's make this happen. If, if you're going to do that, you have to do it correctly. You have to do it to where you, you don't embarrass the men and women of the armed forces, which is exactly what this president has done. Forget about the, the optics of, of how it looks when you're pulling out there, but what he's done and what he has said to basically minimize the efforts of everybody who went over there, those who returned and those who didn't, and those that left part of themselves back there 
in Iraq or Afghanistan. To, to say some of the things he said belittles everything that we that we did. And, and it's only going to, it, it just goes to show that as divided as we can be politically at a time like this, when it comes down to it, Americans are Americans and we believe in what we're doing here. And those people who may have been silent about what's going on here are not silent about what's happening in the United States today. And there's many people that'll say, if it happens again, we'll stand up again. You have to hope that that's going to be the case. You know, I'm too old now to put on a uniform and get out there. That doesn't mean I wouldn't do it again. So that's why it's important to me, my role here within Convention of States, as I've told people when I speak to them, this is the way that I can still participate in defending my, my country and fighting for America, because I'm fighting to make sure at this point that I don't have another administration like what's happening now that's going to lead us down a path of self-destruction. And I think a lot of people are seeing this now and waking up. It's a different kind of woke that's happening here today. Um, you, you, you just set up my question perfectly because I was just about to ask you about Convention of States. Uh, and I want to pull on that thread just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, a Convention of States, unfortunately, it can't do anything about the people in Afghanistan or can't do anything for the people in Afghanistan. But a convention can send a message to D.C., can send the strongest message from we the people to Washington, D.C. And a convention can limit the size, scope, jurisdiction of the federal government. It could put limitations on Congress's ability to spend, limitations on the size of the federal government, limitations on career politicians like Joe Biden. And that's why so many veterans such as yourself have supported the Convention of States movement and they have signed on as uh, supporters through our uh, Veterans for COS coalition. So I want to ask you a little bit about your um, wh why you decided to support Convention of States. And you said just a moment ago that you took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. Um, why are you continuing that with Convention of States and calling an Article 5 convention? Well, <clears throat> let's see. As, as most, uh, most veterans can tell you and those who who uh, work for the federal government. While that oath of office defends this country foreign and against foreign and domestic, it also defends the constitution. But anybody will tell you that as I defend everybody's right to free speech, bear arms, everything else, when you're in one of those institutions, you don't have the opportunity fully engaged 100% in free speech and things you want to do, right? It's the military, it's the government. You have you have things you have to be able to, to do. In fact, especially when you've uh, done a career like I've done, you sign a piece of paper that says you're not free to talk about a lot of things that you've done, experienced, or anything like that. So there's still some restraints on that, which I understand I comply with. But at this moment, now that I'm done completely, I've, I, you know, I've, I've retired from the agency, I sold my company, I'm no longer working, and anything that's to do with that, I have more liberty to speak. And in talking to one of my former colleagues, we talked about the COS movement, and uh, he introduced me to um, the book I still keep right up here, Liberty Amendments, and reading that. And when I read that, of course, I needed my dictionary to understand some of the, the words that, that uh, Levin puts in his book. But it opened my eyes to say, look how much and how the United how this government has taken away and eroded our freedoms and our rights, something they shouldn't have been able to do. Then I also saw that 
this is at least some way I can give back to say, like we put in our thing, we got to get everything back on track. How do we do that? The goal being to have that convention is one thing, to be able to put uh, amendments, put them forth to try to, uh, to bring the government back to where our founders wanted it to be there. But as I've gone through this year, I've also figured out a couple of things. Think about this, and I was reading it from one of the books here. When we talk about Iran or anything like this here, you never talk about them without linking it directly to Islam. But we don't do that here for the United States anymore. This country was founded on Judeo-Christian values. But we don't discuss that anymore. We keep moving away from that. That was important for me to get back to that. But just as important was to wake the people back up and say, you need to be engaged in what's going on in our government from the ground up. You know, more and more I participate, I understand that. And that's where this army has to come from, down here to say, we need to take control of this thing here. This is where we, this is our roles. And quite frankly, a lot of it happened because of my my, my experience from out there. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I broke. I broke. I couldn't function anymore. I had a time even working for my company and all that kind of stuff because my mind was shot for so much time being out there and I had to fix myself. But along with fixing myself, I was able to open up and understand some of these other ideas that I needed to be participated in. And I know that I can't be out there in uniform anymore. I can't be, even when stuff like this is happening, there's still a call in here that says, you should be out there doing what you used to do to make it happen. I can't do that anymore, but I can do it from back here. So this is the way that I can actively engage and fight for my country. And that's what it comes down to. I mean, that's exactly what this comes down to. I am, we may not win, we may not make this happen. I don't know, but I'm not going down without swinging. So let's get real specific here as we begin to close. Al, we're running out of time. I know that there are viewers watching who are wondering what they can possibly do to fix the mess that we have in D.C., which, of course, is why we have a mess in Afghanistan today. So what would you tell them, speaking especially to veterans, maybe speaking to people who have never really done any sort of activism other than just voting in elections, what can they do? Well, the, the first thing is self-education. I mean, you need to be involved. You need to understand exactly what's going on. You can't just watch one news source or listen to one person and their ideas. You need to be able to open your mind and understand what actually is going on from different perspectives. Educating yourself is important. That's one of the things COS does is that we continuously put out um, webinars and courses for everybody to, to open their mind, and engage, and understand what this is all about. And then to make everybody understand, it's, it doesn't start in Washington. It starts here. It starts at home. When we, today, the big argument is, is uh, critical race theory and everything is going on in the schools. Uh, I won't attack that. I won't talk about this specifically, other than the fact that that came about because we were asleep at the wheel and weren't involved in the school boards, the department and education process, and everything like that. The parents have, you know, for whatever reason, you know, work and trying to just stay, you know, above water. Education has been left to somebody else to do it. And we've we've missed that. So that's something we have to take back. And it's to try to educate everybody to say, understand what we're losing so that you know how to fight back and get it back and keep it. Okay. We we need to understand that 
those local elections are where it starts and it's important. It's important to understand that when you, when you elect somebody to your local legislator in your state, that that's for them as a next stepping stone to try to get to Washington. So you want to make sure the right person's in there. We want to make sure that we know how to talk to our legislators, whether they're locally or from Washington, and understand knowing what they're doing, challenge them, praise them for what they're doing good, but challenge them when they're not doing good. It's about being involved. We can't be asleep at the wheel anymore. And, and so I try to educate everybody and say, you, you need to get in the fight locally. You have to do it. I think that is the best call to action that we can have. Stop being asleep at the wheel, get in the fight for liberty. Thank you so much, Al, for joining us on this uh, program. And thank you so much for your service. It was great speaking with My you pleasure. today. Thank you. Thanks, Al. All right, we are going to transition now to our Article 5 trivia giveaway with COS Vice President Mike Ruthenberg. Mike, over to you. All right, I'm back. And hopefully you saw the cool Convention of States knife. We call it the medic that I'm giving away to the person that came up with the answer to our question. I was particularly generous because I gave you the answer to our question, but it's important for understanding the process because we've gotten over 2 million, over 2 million people that have signed our Convention of States petition. And the answer to our, or first of all, our question is, who do we send the Convention of States petition to? And the answer is in 49 states, we send that petition to your state assembly or house member and your state senator. In that 50th state, which is Nebraska, a unicameral state, which means they only have one legislative body in that state called the Senate, then we only send it out to that one representative that you have in the state of Nebraska. You might think, well, I think one of the pe ways people get most confused about Convention of States is thinking that it has some federal ties, but it really doesn't. Article 5 of the Constitution allows for the states, and remember, each state has its own legislature. It allows for the states to, they call it a petition, but it's really a, a mandate once we get to 34 states, to hold a convention for proposing amendments to the Constitution. And therefore, whatever the legislative bodies are in your state, in California, my state, they call it the State Assembly and the State Senate. And I know my representatives, and I know I've signed that petition, and that petition went to my representative. Sometimes they even respond back. It's a very important aspect. It shows that we're real. It shows that this isn't a fake a ploy. This is not about marketing. This is about you. This is about building the grassroots army in order to be able to hold the legislators of ours in the states, hold their feet to the fire and let them know that we expect that they're going to support a convention of states so we can get across the line, we can get to 34. And of course, we've already passed 15 states on our way to 34. We're making great progress. So hopefully you'll keep watching, you'll keep working, and hopefully you're the one who won and you're going you're gonna to get the knife. And don't forget, go to shopconventionofstates.com for under 20 bucks. You can get your own. And hopefully that is satisfying if you weren't the one who got your fingers going first. Now back to you, Andrew and Rita. Thanks, Mike. Well, we're going to go ahead and sign off, Rita. We've had a really uh, packed program today and learned a lot. Al Torres was just absolutely amazing. 
Um, but our leaders, I mean, they don't care about us. They really don't. And they definitely don't care about what we think. So why are we looking to them to solve our problems? Why are we looking to them to solve the runaway debt? Why are we looking them looking to them to solve career politicians or the size of the federal government? They don't, they're part of the problem and they don't care. Instead, we should be looking to the states and we the people because we are going to be the ones that are going to put the federal government back in that constitutional box that they're supposed to be in. The founding fathers, they gave us a solution. It's in Article 5, and it allows we the people to circumvent Congress when they fail to act. It allows us to uh, propose constitutional amendments. An Article 5 Convention of States gives we the people the power to propose amendments that would limit the that would limit limit uh, presidential power, that would limit the federal government's size, scope, and jurisdiction, that would put limitations on federal agencies. That's a big one. Or it could put limitations on Congress's ability to spend. And it can also put limitations on just the size of the federal government. Now, you know and I know that this is one of the biggest problems facing America right now, the size of the federal government. But an Article Five Convention of States has the power to reverse that size of government. But don't look to politicians like Joe Biden. He's contributing to the problem. He has no desire to reduce the size and the scope of the federal government. It's going to take we the people. We the people are going to be able to reduce the size of the federal government. That's why millions of that's why millions of supporters have signed the COS petition. And that's why thousands have volunteered for this organization. You can't wait every two to four years to get involved in the political process. You can't wait for an election. You can't look to DC politicians and you can't wait for a white knight to ride in to drain the swamp. No, it's going to take we, the people. That's why Convention of States has created over a dozen volunteer positions that allow you to jump in with your unique talents and with your unique skills. Hey, maybe you're computer savvy. Maybe you geek out on using computers. Well, we have a perfect position for you. It's the systems information analyst position. And it is a critical role that will allow you to work with your state team and help them get plugged into the different tech tools that we use and the different web tools that we use. It is a critical position. So if you like computers, if you like to geek out with computers, get involved, go to www.conventionofstates.com, go to the take action page and look over this position. Look over and see if it's something that you would like to apply to. Rita, please tell our viewers where they can go if they want to get some more COS content. Absolutely. Well, don't forget to go to Rumble, MeWe, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Parlor, and Instagram. You can also listen to this program and other historic legacy content on our new podcast, Search Convention of States on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Amazon Music, or Audible. And leave us a five-star review because that really helps us grow the show's audience. Text the word START to 54555 in order to bypass big tech and make sure you receive important news and messages from COS. Again, that's S-T-A-R-T to the number 54555. 
Check out the battle cry with COS President Mark Meckler Sunday nights at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll see you back here next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of COS Live. Remember, if you're looking for the person who's going to restore the Republic, don't look to D.C. What you really need to do is just hold up a mirror. This has been the podcast version of COS Live. Check out more content at conventionalstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.